baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to the December 2020 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And it is a good one. I'm Richard Hollingham. Does that mean the previous ones are not so good? I think you maybe need to rethink that. No, they're, they're good. This is <laughs> this really is good. This good. is This is a good one. This is a really, I mean, really good one. They're good, obviously. I, yeah. this is, okay, this is an excellent one. Thank you. That's better. That's yeah. better. I'm Sue Nelson. Although I'm worried now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In a moment, we'll be hearing from British ESA astronaut Tim Peake about his perilous docking with the space station, a bumpy return to Earth, space playlists and the legacy of his six-month mission. And we'll also be talking to the authors of two rather excellent space-related books, one of which involves the joys of wearing lycra cartoon style. Now, unbelievably, it's five years since Tim Peake's launch in a Soyuz spacecraft to the International Space Station. Well, let's hear some of that marvellous European Space Agency commentary. I may be biased. A second service tower separation. The launch of Soyuz carrying ESA astronaut Tim Peake on his Principia mission to the International Space Station. On board the Soyuz spacecraft, Tim Peake in the left-hand seat, Yuri Malenchenko, Soyuz commander in the centre seat, Tim Kopra, flight engineer for NASA in the right-hand seat. Actually, that's not my best bit of commentary. My best bit of commentary was the uh, 45 minutes where all you saw was astronauts' bottoms bobbing up and down, waiting for the hatch to open but that's and the, sort of the, thing the astronauts you put on your to come CV. into the space station. That's the sort of thing that's, that's a CV one thing because that's, uh, they're the most difficult things to do. Having, uh, when I first worked on uh, BBC News 24, when it was, uh, you know, the first digital 24-hour news programme in, 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 in the UK, wasn't it? And I spent a lot of my time because it was quite new digital technology talking when there was just a frozen flag uh, on the screen or having somebody in my ears saying, oh my God, we can't cope. Oh, oh, oh. And, and you're hearing what's going on in the director's room and, and they're just going, keep talking, keep talking. So yeah, I feel, I feel your pain with that. But what I loved about hearing you, you say that was that it takes me back to, and I'm sure we may have mentioned this before, actually, uh, probably five years ago after the launch, was that I was sitting in a TV studio um, for some uh, BBC morning program commentating on the launch and then they said and now we'll go to the launch commentary and I heard your voice and luckily the cameras weren't on me because if they would have been they would have seen me go (laughs) to look all excited but I couldn't say anything that's Richard that's Richard that's Richard but it was yeah that was so cool on so many levels seeing a British ESA astronaut go up And also hearing your voice, uh, yeah, that was rather special. Oh, thank you. Now, five years on, Tim has an autobiography out, Limitless, uh, you would have doubtless seen in in all bookshops. And the UK Space Agency has launched a campaign encouraging people to submit their stories of how his 2015 Principia mission 
inspired them. Well, thanks to our support from the UK Space Agency, I was lucky enough to sit down with Tim for a half-hour chat during a special event at the ESA Centre in Harwell, Oxfordshire, last week. And we're going to play you the whole of that wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Before he became an astronaut, though, Tim was a test pilot, and we began by talking about the significance to him of the ultimate test pilot, Chuck Yeager, who died this month. Chuck Yeager was a huge icon, yeah, huge inspiration. Yes, to me as a test pilot, yes, growing up as somebody who was passionate about aviation, but I think also to so many people, because even if, you know, aviation wasn't your thing, the fact that that was an incredible human achievement, you know, we went faster than the speed of sound, and uh, it was all part of progression and technology and and pushing the boundaries, and really, Chuck Yeager just, you know, is the epitome of, of the right stuff and what it takes to push the boundaries. Do you think that idea of the right stuff is still with us? I mean, you know, we've now got the TV series, the right stuff. We've had the book, we've had the film, this idea of the right stuff. Or has it, is it more nuanced now? It is more nuanced. Um, I think the right stuff is interesting. It's changed over the years. What is the right stuff? And the right stuff now, I think we think uh, is more of a team of of more of a partnership. In the early days of Apollo and Gemini, Mercury, and, and, you know, it was about taking uh, fast jet test pilots and working as individuals, really pushing machines to the limit. Now what we're doing, it's about collaboration, cooperation, teamwork. We're spending six months, one year in space. We're looking at going to the moon, going to Mars. We need a really diverse team that can handle all the different challenges that are going to be thrown up by those missions. So the right stuff has changed over the years. It's interesting you mentioned that because in the book where you talk about your astronaut selection, you have a realisation that what they're after is, is essentially, without saying it in so many words, a team player. Someone who can live in a tin can around the Earth with other people without causing trouble. Absolutely. I mean, the, on the astronaut selection, we spent one day doing the hard skills. So I would say that's concentration and memory retention, spatial awareness, a bit of science and engineering. One day. The remainder of the year was spent doing psychological profiling, soft skills, teamwork, leadership, communication. Um, so that tells you exactly what the space agencies were really focusing on. That is interesting. Now, I've got an apology to make to you. Um, as, as you may or may not know, I did the commentary for ESA for your for your launch. I was at Munich at Cole CC. And I actually sent you an email just before your launch, uh, very critical of your music selections. And then when you were in the capsule just before launch, they played Europe the final countdown. And I thought that affirms my views. But you didn't actually, <laughs> I read in your book, you didn't actually select that as, a, that as a track. No, that was a surprise to all of us. It was funny, you know, there was Yuri, Tim Cobra, and myself all looking at each other saying, who put this on? You know, but it was funny because uh, Costa, our Russian instructor that was his choice and he thought that would be a nice nice song to listen to as the final one what really took us by surprise though is it finished and we were all kind of giggling about it and and we were three minutes from launch uh, and we had no idea that they would play the music up you know that late to launch that shows the confidence doesn't it in in the Soyuz and the way that they they do this that the way they know it's going to work yeah, it does. And, and obviously part of that is to try and relax the crew. But you're right, there, it, there's a huge amount of confidence in that, in that spacecraft and in that rocket. And they have a mantra of if ain't broke, then don't fix it. When you're sat in there, you're surrounded by components that haven't changed since the 60s. Uh, yes, part of it is glass cockpit and there's been parts that have been modernised. But essentially, it's a very old school rocket. Is it also, do you think, just to stop you just thinking about the, your situation 
too much to just uh, uh, kind of normalize it, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you, you know, you have to get into the right mindset. And I think that that mindset shift happens when the hatch is closed and you realize, okay, it's, it's a very claustrophobic, very confined environment, but you embrace it. That's the new normal. You've taken your last breaths of fresh air for six months and the music helps you relax. It helps you to normalize that situation. But you're very aware that you're sat on top of 300 tons of rocket fuel. You're also incredibly cramped in those in those seats and with the the uh, pressure suit. Once you've lifted off and once you you hit weightlessness, I mean, after that eight minutes, is there an enormous feeling of kind of release and and relief? Mm, it is, yeah, because everything's designed for space. It's not designed for Earth, so we can't really walk properly in those spacesuits. You see us coming out, and we're all stooped over. That's because the spacesuits are designed for a sitting position. If you were relaxed standing up, it would be far too baggy when you were sat down, and uh, and if it had to inflate, you'd be like the Michelin Man, all blown up and, and too much material. So that's why everything is designed for space, and it's uncomfortable until you get into space, and then you're in weightlessness, and that's when you realise that everything has been perfectly designed. Is there a moment? I mean, you see it on the the, the TV screen. Uh, I can't remember what the cuddly toy was. There was was it a giraffe or something? Uh, Yuri actually had a, a pen, uh, one of his daughter's pens, as a, as a mascot. But yeah, it tends to be a cuddly toy, or some something. sort of cuddly toy that suddenly floats mm, around. Yeah. Yeah, along with any sort of tools that have been left behind by the crews. <laughs> any dust or debris or screws and things. So, no, there's not usually too many surprises. But, yeah, anything that's not strapped down will be floating as soon as you get into orbit. So were there any stray, stray bolts or...? or we we had, had a couple of little bits float up, um, which is funny. You know, you get that in aircraft sometimes when you're doing zero-G manoeuvres as well. That's a bit, that's a bit alarming, isn't it? Because you know you build an IKEA flat pack, and there's a couple of screws left over. You build a spacecraft, there's a couple of screws left over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, I mean, obviously everything is is designed and manufactured and tested in a very you know sterile environment. But at the end of the day, you're having a lot of people getting in that spacecraft in the last few days, being packed up with cargo, and so some stray bits do get in there. Now, uh, everything uh, as ever, you know, we're talking about the, the launch and coming up to the docking, all so smooth, because it's always so smooth. And then can you just talk us through what happened with the docking? Because there was, I mean, suddenly the, the, there was, you know, and I, I say I was at uh, CC, so the mission control in Germany, not so many people there, not the main mission control. Nevertheless, suddenly the atmosphere just changed like that when you it appeared to have to abort the docking at the ISS. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, uh, in, in my years of aviation, you, you come to realise that the most dangerous situations are where it's not one failure, it's multiple failures. And we had already had um, this niggling failure going on in the Soyuz from the moment we got into orbit. Uh, and it was just a high humidity, um, and uh, we had to manually remove the condensate from the, the spacecraft. So I was doing that, but, but it is an alarm, and it comes on, and I was doing that probably about every 20 minutes. But of course, you then get desensitised to the master alarm, and here we go again, pump the condensate. Condensate, and sure enough, as as we were coming in for the docking, there was a condensate problem, but it was preceded by a fraction of a second by a thruster sensor failing, and that was the serious failure that caused us to abort. But what we saw on the screen was condensate. So here we go again, start pumping condensate, and, and we're still you know docking, and then we realised the spacecraft was moving backwards. Uh, we've aborted, and and then there was a little bit of digging down, finding out what's gone wrong. Yuri had to take manual control and then fly the spacecraft manually, which which turned out to be extremely difficult. 
difficult because we were transitioning between day to night. And as you cross the Terminator, you know, you, you, you come into the shadow of the Earth. But also the sun, of course, is very, very low on the horizon. So the space station just becomes a complete mirror reflecting all the light back. So uh, Yuri was blinded by this light through all the optics. And um, I come back to the multiple fa- failure scenario. Then a, then a screen went down on us inside the spacecraft as well. So now we've got, you know, failure stacking up on top of them. So the first manual docking was not perfect at all, and we came to you know, almost near collision scenario. So Yuri was able to recognise that. Thankfully, he's a very experienced cosmonaut. Backed off and uh, lined it all up, and came in for a textbook docking. But it was a bit shaky for a few moments there. Uh, and there's, <laughs> I that's your test pilot in you, isn't it? There, you, you also look and you, you mad, picture the, the the space station. There's so much now with the solar arrays and so many different modules i mean it's not even an easy approach even in perfect conditions no it's not we you know we were coming up uh, from underneath the space station and we had a cygnus uh, spacecraft that was already docked right next to us um yeah space station's a busy place it's, it's fun it makes it exciting but you're right you could have um, a couple of progress vehicles a soyuz at the end in the russian segment you might have a cygnus a, a spacex now or a japanese htv so there are spacecraft coming and going and the docking ports you, you know you you haven't got many metres between them, very few in fact. And what's interesting, it's ultimately when you have like you said, the multiple failures, it comes down to the crew in the end. There's nothing mission control can do other than advise. You're the ones there that have to sort it out. Yes, yeah, and and in some respects it's actually better um, to leave it to the crew to sort it out because, you know, they're in the best place to be able to analyse what's gone wrong and and to deal with it. As we get more data coming back from from spacecraft, um, it's a case of, you know, getting that balance right between what data is going to mission control and where they can help and where they can inform versus, you know, the bells and whistles that's going on inside a spacecraft and what needs to happen the right the right time and it's interesting it's always I, I'm, one of my favorite movies is apollo 13 and you mine see, too you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's literally my favorite film yeah and you see that you know uh, and, and we you know we hear that on the, the voice transcripts of, of you know mission control trying to analyze this data in a very sterile environment and, and actually up in space you've got a spacecraft that's spinning out of control and, and you know uh, and they're dealing with something very physical very real that's gone wrong with this shimmy going on and and mission control is thinking it's a, just a telemetry problem what i love though and it did take quite a while once you docked for finally you come into the uh, into the iss it's like it's all it's all over and what was that first impression of the space station because obviously you trained in the full-size simulator but in gravity it was anything strange was anything the wrong way up or was it how you expected it um, it is strange. It does take your brain a while to work it all out. But the, the, the strange thing is that it feels very, very familiar. It's a home from home because you've, you've trained in these very high fidelity mock-ups all around the world. And so coming into the, the Russian uh, Mimadinas is where we dock to, you think, oh, hang on, this is just like Star City, yeah, it's, it, but I'm floating. And then there, there are a few differences, but really not many. I mean, they, we, we keep the mock-ups here on Earth at a very high level uh, so that we can train properly. The biggest shock, of course, is, is going to to the cupola window and that's when you get this incredible view and you think okay this is this is not like the you know johnson space center well let's talk about you know life on the on the space station i was uh, lucky enough to be a, a marshal a nasa marshal when you were on the station and they kept talking about the tims 
uh, and the because it was you uh, and Tim Copra. And they kept saying, the Tims are fantastic. They're way ahead of their timeline. I mean, were you aware that you were referred to as, as the Tims? The Tims. No. <laughs> as a collective? <laughs> we weren't, no. But it was interesting. We did have a few discussions before going up when they said, what would you like to be called? And we kind of looked at each other and said, well, Tim. You know, Tim. Yeah, I think that will work fine. And they kind of looked a bit perplexed, but surely we need to call you something different. So we said, well, if there is any ambiguity, then just Tim Peak, Tim Copra. But actually, the majority of the time, it, was, it worked out fine. And we were just the Tims. But you did seem to work together really well as a, as a, as a, as a team a particular, particularly the two of you Yeah we did, I, I was very fortunate really and very grateful to be crewed with Tim Copra, very like minded you know, we'd shared similar uh, careers he was a, a US Apache pilot um, uh, uh, and I'd been obviously a British Apache pilot having served time with the US as well so we, we had lots in common and I think we had a similar approach to the way we dealt with situations I mean Tim is great he's, he's, he's very thoughtful, considerate and cool and calm and he just takes everything in his stride i like that kind of approach and that that suits my personality and character i was gonna say would you would you describe yourself as that i think so yeah i mean i i I don't tend to get phased by things and and i think you know taking a a cool calm approach to situations is always better than than jumping in and coming to the wrong conclusion and scott kelly was a fantastic commander when we first arrived you know scott had been on board eight months he had the space station running like clockwork i mean uh, it was just incredible to see him work so we were really fortunate to take over a space station which was in absolute top order was he quite an intimidating character to to be as your commander particularly he'd been there for for eight months i mean i i've interviewed him and i'm like some of the when i've interviewed some of the apollo astronauts i'm a little bit scared if truth be told (laughs) yeah scott is one of these people who uh you know he he comes across as quite intimidating quite gruff uh very you know short um, and to the point uh, and he is but actually when you get to know him he's he's brilliant he's got a fantastic sense of humor uh, he's a wonderful leader and he's very caring and considerate and uh, caring and considerate would not be the first two adjectives you would probably describe him having met him for five minutes you know but he is he, he's he's a very selfless leader and on multiple occasions on the space station you know he would put himself out to help out the crew uh, so he was a he was a brilliant person to have up there as the commander now, obviously, you did the, the work you were assigned, the ESA work, but you did a lot of outreach work. Um, were you aware that, you know, you were becoming, particularly in the classrooms around the UK, a bit of a superstar? You know, and it, it wasn't maybe a national celebrity, but it was certainly a celebrity among among children in, in classrooms. It's something you're really unaware of, actually. In space, you're, you're quite isolated up there, <laughs> cut off, and everything is one way. I think the, the, the thing about, the, and I guess this is a testament to how, how well we run things on the space station, because um, everything appears as if it's two-way, but it's not. It's, it's kind of we're recording things in space, sending things down, and um, we will then get on to work, and, and very rarely do we then see the feedback. So lots of the um, messages I'd be sending would be all just recorded and sent down so so you're very unaware of the um of the impact that the mission is having until you actually get back down and when we sat uh, with the uk space agency before the mission uh, we came up with this plan i don't think any of us realized 
the impact it was going to have. We came up with about 30 projects and, and probably thought, well, if, if half of this is taken on and if half of this is successful, then we'll, we'll call that a good job done. And the fact that every single programme kind of grew a life of its own and, you know, the schools really engaged, the teachers really engaged and the students really engaged, it was unbelievable. But I didn't see a lot of that until I got back and then realised the impact the mission had had. Do you feel that we're seeing that, that you know, the benefits of that of that now? Very much so, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, so many people are inspired. Uh, yes, it was the, the younger people in particular when we have, you know, somebody in space and you can use space as part of the curriculum to then get people engaged in science and tech and maths, then it's, it's, it's a wonderful platform to use. So space is also a place of wonder and excitement and awe. And so young children tend to be in that imaginative phase where they get really excited about it. But um, I had lots of, um, you know, mature people and some elderly people as well saying that they were just like little kids again you know back to back to getting engaged in space going out to their gardens to look at the space station so I think space is a place of inspiration for all but you are right I mean it was the program was focused on inspiring the next generation but it's extraordinary that we should even become jaded about this isn't it because you know you look at that you talk about the pictures from the the cupola or the fact you can stand out in the garden well probably not today but you know in parts and see the space station go over I mean that is inspiring. It's hugely inspiring, absolutely. And it goes to show the, what, what we can achieve when we work together. And the, the fact that we have created something like that, um, uh, you know, and left our planet, and we've occupied it for over 20 years, we've had humans uh, in space. So, that, you know, it's interesting when you go around and talk to children and students, and you say for the, for the entirety of your life, not all the human population has been on Earth uh, as long as you've been alive. You know, at least some people have always been in space. That's quite incredible. Yeah, that, that, no, that absolutely is. With your... I mean, downtime on on the space station, I know you filled it with a lot of these sorts of experiments, but was there time to take stock or or was, because I've I've spoken to quite a few astronauts and often they say I didn't really kind of hit home until I was back on the Earth of what I was going through or experiencing. And I think I picked up some of that in, in the book because I've interviewed you before about your spacewalk. And now when you write about it five years on, you're you're almost uh, much more poetic. I think you've got a bit of more of a, an Italian in you with the the, the spacewalk yeah. <laughs> now uh, than you did when, you, when I first interviewed you about it maybe four four years ago. And is is that a yeah. process? Have you found that it's very much a process? Yeah, and uh, you do make time to you know relax on the space station. You do have to make time to to enjoy and to reflect to a degree. But you're always working at a high tempo. You're always keeping that edge uh, on the space station in case something goes wrong you're always aware that you're in a, a hostile environment and, and you need to be prepared uh, for any eventuality so I think that environment stops you from completely relaxing and processing your thoughts and emotions so I think you kind of do keep things in check and then gradually over the years you're you're able to kind of go back and reflect only last summer I was uh, at a dinner with uh, Rusty Schreikart and speaking about his you know, spacewalk and, and he was saying the same thing he said I'm still I don't think I've processed that that spacewalk completely you know even even now after all the years so it's something that you do I, I think process to a, a much larger degree once you get back um, you have time to reflect now can I just talk about your your return to earth I know that you know you, you did the smiles for the cameras when you got out of the uh, of the capsule and afterwards you weren't very well at all immediately afterwards and I didn't really realize again until I've read in your book what what actually happened so can you sort of explain what 
the, you know, about the, the re-entry and then the, the physical consequences of all that. Yeah, so, I mean, actually, I mean, the, the re-entry was brilliant fun, uh, and yeah. I, I loved it. I've, I've, got the, I've got the GoPro footage, and, and I've w- watched it a few times, and I'm just like, giggling like a schoolboy as we're, you know, pulling the Gs and the, and the wrapped in a ball of plasma and the parachutes come open. It's a roller coaster ride. That's all enormous fun, as actually is, you know, the landing as well. Yes, it's a car crash, but it's, it's you know, it's quite an event. Um, and you feel fine. You know, there's no kind of feeling of sickness or anything. And then you're waiting for about 10 minutes for the search and rescue crews to come and find you and, and get you out of the spacecraft. And that's when gravity starts taking its toll. And, and your, uh, your whole vestibular system is, is really not comfortable. Uh, and it affects people to a varying degree. I mean, I was, I was very, very lucky going into space. I had, you know, virtually no space sickness and, and got straight on with it. And some people suffer for 10 days with, with space sickness. But then some people come back to Earth and they're absolutely fine. You know, I was somebody who had two days of feeling pretty dreadful. Just, I think, as my vestibular system sorted itself out as you, you know, come back to, to gravity. So... You know, your balance is a bit off, but it's this sort of feeling of, of dizziness and nausea. nausea. And that's the worst feeling. You just don't want to move your head. Um, you know, you can imagine what it's like if you move your head and the world spins. So, um, yeah, just that, that was the most unpleasant thing. And you also, you couldn't urinate. Well, what was funny is, you know, we, we wear nappies in the spacecraft on launch, re-entry and during a spacewalk, you know, because you've got no access to a loo for hours and hours at a time. And it's important to stay hydrated as well during those periods and I hadn't actually needed to use it at all on launch or during the spacewalk and then for re-entry another thing we do is we um, try and fluid load before we come back we actually have salt tablets and the salt tablets you know depending on your body weight you have a, a fixed amount of salt and then you drink the liquid to go with it and the idea is to try and bulk up your body fluid because in space what you've done over six months is you've lost a lot of body fluid because you just don't need it. And when you come back to Earth, if you haven't got it, then that can, uh, you know, um, make your blood pressure drop quite low and it can uh, cause fainting, for example. So, you know, you're supposed to drink water and salt load, which I, I had, but then we wear these kentavas as well, which are like Russian garments. They're like anti-G suits, but they don't actually inflate like a... a so they're constrictive. They just constrict, yeah, yeah with laces. So you, you wear them tightly. And I guess I probably, you know, I, I, I drunk my fluid wearing this kentava but didn't need to urinate at all during re-entry for absolutely fine, no problems at all. Um, when you come off the spacecraft, you go into the medical tent and they'll, they'll often put an IV drip in you again to try and get fluid inside you, so I had that as well. And it was only as we were on the helicopter and we were on this MI-17 and we were going to the, uh, the airport where the, the NASA jet was waiting for us. And I said to my medical surgeon, uh, I said, Look, I've got a bit of stomach pain and I'm not sure why or what it is. So there in the back of the helicopter, he just got the ultrasound and had a quick look and he just laughed and he said, your bladder is the size of a rugby ball. And he said, I'm not surprised you've got some stomach pain. You need to urinate. Like, oh, that's weird because I don't feel like I need to, but okay. Uh, and then when it got back to the, uh, you know, we got into the, the, the medical room and, uh, and I, I couldn't, I, my bladder had distended. It had gone so far that it actually then stops you from urinating. And um, this is a, you know, a, a problem that's happened with astronauts before. And of course, the only way to then to do that is to have a catheter so you can actually release the pressure and urinate. So I had all this going on as well, which is not the, the most pleasant <laughs> Of things to deal with when your Within world is also of without of returning and your world is spinning around as well but it was fine i mean it's, it's 
it's a very basic procedure at the end of the day. So looking back now, five years, mm. that, that flight to the space room, does it feel like that? Uh, it, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it feels just like yesterday. It's incredible. Uh, and then, um, you know, sometimes I think, gosh, yeah, wow, five years, it's, it's how, how the time flies. But it, it's amazing to, to think back, you know, to, to that whole experience. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's something that will stay with me forever, very fresh in my mind, thankfully. And you've done a lot. Uh, you've got obviously got the book out now, but you've done work with scouts, with schools, with, you know, and, and continuing what you were doing in space has that been important yeah very much so you know we've had this brilliant outreach campaign and it was important to keep that going to keep the inspiration going and um and for me personally i think that interpersonal skills are so important and um things like the prince's trust things like the scouts the cadets the duke of edinburgh awards you know all these things get get young people out pushing their comfort zone building resilience gaining confidence it's skills for life it absolutely is and and Yes, academics are important, but, you know, so are interpersonal skills. So I think, you know, trying to give kids those opportunities, especially if they come from backgrounds where they might not have as many opportunities as other, other children, is, is vitally important. Uh, and just reading your book, you didn't, what's interesting, you didn't set out to be an astronaut. You went into the army, you went into uh, flying helicopters, you became a test pilot, and then it was suggested to you. Mm. That, that you did that yeah i mean I, I i don't think if you'd have you know questioned children in the uk in the 1980s i don't think actually many of them would have thought they could be astronauts because we were watching americans and russians fly to space and, and i was too i was enjoying it. i watched the shuttle launches later on i watched the mir space station being built but again, it seemed to be something that other nations were doing and we could just look on in awe and wonder. And, you know, I chose my, my passion, which was aviation. You know, maybe if I'd have grown up in the US and seen, uh, thought, actually one day that could be me, uh, maybe it would have been different. For me, it was much more of a, a sort of uh, iterative process and a more incremental route of getting there. But I think the main thing is to enjoy the journey because, you know, even if you do set your sights on becoming an astronaut, which is fantastic to have dreams, it's fantastic to have goals and ambitions but you've still got to enjoy the journey you know nobody gets picked to be an astronaut from school or from university so you've got to think what is it that you're going to do before you become an astronaut and make sure it's something you're passionate about and what about your goals and ambitions you knew this question was coming are you going back to space as a as an easter astronaut or is at least that your plan to go back to space as an easter astronaut there's certainly an ambition to get back to space yes and uh, esa is is flying its european astronauts at a, a great rate they always have had a really good track record and we've seen luca and alex return to the space station Tomo will fly next year on spacex which will be exciting and then samantha andy myself and matthias as well our new class of 2009 has joined us matthias so yeah esa has a plan to to fly us all back and of course the space station is a destination but what's really exciting about the next five years is we're going to see the first um, humans go back to the moon after this uh, this break that we've had on SLS and Orion. So it's going to be really exciting to see ESA involved in that. And um, and who knows, you know, maybe we'll see European astronauts in the early stages of those missions. And that's a possibility for you. I mean, you can't. You can only have that at the back of your mind. You can't. Yeah, you can't. I mean, the the UK is obviously part of ESA, and uh, ESA is part of the Artemis program. So um, yeah, we're very much involved in that. Uh, and when you go back, can I help with your playlist, please? <laughs> I'll come and give you a shout, Richard.
British ESA astronaut Tim Peake. And if you've got a story of what Tim Peake's mission has meant to you and the people you know, uh, do submit your thoughts to the Inspired by Tim campaign on the UK Space Agency website. And there are apparently prizes. And Tim's book, Limitless, is pretty much everywhere. Uh, it's genuinely really good. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to sound surprised there. It's really good. And uh, we'll discuss it in just a sec. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on most social media. Do get in touch. You can also email info at boffinmedia.co.uk. Um, I wanted to talk a bit more about the book, um, just in that it is really good. What's really good about yes, it... Yes, you sounded very surprised <laughs> yet no. again. But was this it, a good book or an really excellent book? book? Or was it, it better than normal? <laughs> it's or, a or more than you expected? No, well, I, I always sound... People say I sound... When I'm trying to give a compliment, someone said the other day I sounded passive-aggressive, and I really don't mean oh, to. I really don't oh, mean to. That's, that's very accurate. Yeah, um, I'm just aggressive-aggressive. <laughs> so anyway, no, it's, it's a really good book. What's great about it... Great. It is... What's great about it is that actually two-thirds of it is not about... Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station. It is about his growing up, his uh, going to Sandhurst, his um, posting in Northern Ireland during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and then becoming a helicopter pilot. I hadn't known that about Exactly. So that's all fascinating. What I loved about that interview, and also I think it's from the book, I think it's because he's processed a lot of the things that he he was talking about, which was what we talked about in the interview. Uh, He's much more open. We're hearing a lot more. But previously, I've asked him that question because I knew he wasn't in a good way after he came back from from other people who were there at that moment. But he's never talked about that. For, for so me, I thought how, that was fascinating. It's how relaxed within a few minutes of listening to it for the first time, I thought, oh, gosh, he sounds different. Um, he's, he did. He sounded relaxed and more open and... Um, free i suppose and maybe that's you know obviously through having time out uh from from doing the very regimented scripted often you know do say this don't say that type uh interviews when you have to do press interviews understandably he yeah he's he just he, i think we got added tim i think i, I, feel as though I got to hear him as having more of a personality no, I, I agree, absolutely. And I think it was fascinating hearing about the multiple failures as they were docking. Mm. I mean, we got a sense that something had gone quite wrong when we were doing the commentary. Because um, you could see people's faces. Well, yes. yeah, absolutely. And senior mission controllers, their faces. Whereas all you get over the, the loops, you know, the, so the mission control to the, the crew is this very calm, obviously. You know, like, they're all professionals. Like ducks on water, the calm gliding on or swans that can't gliding on the surface and then you look beneath the water and you see everybody's feet go <laughs> yeah and it was interesting to it was about you know the crew had to sort this problem out themselves essentially but we got no real sense of that we could just see what was happening and it was clear that the uh docking had to be aborted and also as i was saying when he was came back to earth and the, the medical problems he experienced within the first I, I like hours. his description he's like he said a roller coaster he really genuinely even just thinking about it sounded like he was reliving the moment and obviously <laughs> had a really great time a moment that probably would have had most people throwing well, you, up in a corner you talk somewhere. to other people yeah. and they, they find that you yes, know, they always say that's the, 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 the even even astronauts who've been into space multiple times 
just can't forget that landing. No, absolutely. Uh, and we will we'll come back to this uh, in the new year because I also talked to a couple of people who've you know, have been inspired by the mission. Because really, you know, if you were in the UK, I mean, if you were at school in the UK, he was really absolutely a oh, superstar. kids went wild the, here, Absolutely. Didn't they? Yeah. He's such a, a, you know, an A-list celebrity among, uh, well, they were now adults of mm. a certain age from Which, which is mission. amazing. I mean, because when, for a, places like America, they've had that for decades because they've had so many, particularly post-shuttle, so many astronauts go into space and and you know nasa they're brilliant at their their pr and the, the astronauts there are so good at uh communicating their love of science or space or, or what have you and encouraging kids to go on and do stem subjects or aim aim high um i think britain finally got a little taste of it because we did have it with helen Sharman, obviously in the 80s and that was amazing but actually we then had 20 years of 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 that was sort of it. So there's a whole generation of children in the UK that have not had that role model. But I think the name recognition is really interesting. You know, if you did a, a survey of name astronauts, I think, you know, Tim Peake would probably be number one, particularly anyone in their, their teens or early oh, yeah. 20s. Yes. It wouldn't be Buzz Aldrin or any of the no, Apollo astronauts. No, because that's, that's ancient and, history for yeah, this generation. Similarly, now. I it's think in, in America, books, you know, there's not much name recognition for most of the shuttle astronauts, with a few exceptions, maybe, mm. you know. Um, but, you know, Tim Peake, absolutely. Chris Hadfield, they'll all know, and maybe Mike Massimino from Big Bang uh, Theory. Big Bang Theory yeah. And they'll know Karen Rubin. And obviously they'll know the most recent Amazing Women. Maybe. Oh, maybe. maybe, do you think? Oh, mm, maybe. Oh, I, just, I think <laughs> the ones that have just come back from the space station are... Oh, you're mm. sounding very cynical now, Richard. <laughs> Maybe. I think, anyway, I, want, I, think look, I want the overexcited one now. <laughs> uh, just to say again, if you if you have got anything you you know you could contribute, this inspired by Tim campaign is quite cool. Uh, have a, a look at the uh, space agency website. Well, um, one person that you may recall seeing a lot on TV screens in the UK during Tim Peake's launch and uh, subsequent stay on the space station was Libby Jackson. She managed the education program for Tim Peake's mission and as a former flight director at ESA's Columbus Control Centre in Munich, she also knows what it's like to be in constant touch with the ISS, in that case for Europe's Columbus Laboratory. Well, a few years ago, she wrote the extremely popular book, A Galaxy of Her Own, about women in space. And her latest book for young readers is Space Explorers, 25 Extraordinary Stories of Space Exploration. As its name suggests, it contains 25 chapters covering memorable tales, ranging from the first astronauts to today, including one of them about Luca Palmitano's near drowning on a spacewalk, which you can hear the astronaut talking about himself in our October podcast, I think it was, celebrating 20 years of human presence on the ISS. But back to Libby and the reason for writing a second book. It really, for me, is about sharing the history, the amazing stories of what's happened in human spaceflight right back from the beginning. And those were the stories that captured my imagination and led me into the, the space industry. It's really trying to tell the big adventures that go right back to the beginning, but also then take you all the way through up to the present day and what's happening on the International Space Station and so on. And by the time you get later in it, it was much easier to find stories that did reflect 
the diversity of the space sector today. And I hope it will inspire people from whatever their background, whatever they look like, wherever they're from, to see that the space sector is something they, they can come and get involved in. What I like about the book are the stories. And you've honed in on with like Vostok 2 on the, the rescue, which when I sort of read it, I thought, yeah, that's the really interesting bit about it. I mean, is that sort of what made your decision was sort of like, okay, there's so much of space history, but which are the bits that I sort of think, oh, yeah, that was a good bit because that involved skiers and snow and uh, cutting down trees before we could actually get to the cosmonauts. Yes, I think to a young person, you sometimes have to go, this, this really did happen. There is so much excitement and so much drama. But for young people today, you sort of step in their shoes. They've had humans living and working in space their entire lives. Space is part of everyday life. In some ways, it's almost not exciting. And what I wanted to do was go and capture that excitement, that amazement, the the drama, particularly um, in the early days. The book really takes you right through and it was, it, it was those stories that were like, oh, wow. And, and for me, it was so important that the very first page in it um, says that, uh, I can read it out now, it says, these stories are not creations of imagination, no matter how unbelievable they may at first seem. And they're all true, told just as they really happened. And that was, for me, the, the most important bit, because so much gets dramatised and then you start going what's real and what's not and what I wanted to do was just portray the excitement and the drama of reality yeah of reality yes. yeah and I think they landed in the middle of this snow covered forest and they had to you know were looking out for bears and all that trauma after the first spacewalk I think it's amazing and then you go through to to Michael Fole and and the crew on board Mir who were having to look at the stars to work out which way their space station was pointing. They, they had to do that to get the fans going so they could breathe air because the, the Mir space station was just in such trouble. You, you can't make these things up. You don't need to because they're that fantastic and amazing. And it, I really want to share with young people these, these, these wonderful, wonderful stories. I really liked the Sally Ride and... Svetlana Sabaskaya, I think that's how you pronounce her surname. No, it was a story that I discovered reading um, the biography of Sally Ride. And then you dig into it and and, um, there's uh, um, things from from the translators that the story in a nutshell, for for those who don't know it, and and I would be surprised how many do, if many do, Sally Ride, of course, was the first female American astronaut, but she wasn't the first woman in space. That was that was Valentina Tereshkova. She wasn't the second either. It was Svetlana Savitskaya. And the two of them had both gone through their missions and both had to deal with all kinds of uh, rubbish, in my view, from from the press, the, the sort of sexist comments how are you going to deal with your hair? Are you scared? The kinds of questions they were getting that none of the men who they were flying with were getting. And they'd both gone through this and, and had both, you know, been into space and shown that absolutely men and women can uh, both belong in space and, and both are equally capable. But after their missions, Sally had to go on a sort of tour around the world, publicity tour as astronauts still do today. 
And part of this had seen her go to the International Astronomical Congress, the IAC, which is the big sort of space, world space conference that happens once a year. It still happens today. And the year um, post Sally's mission, this was happening in um, Hungary, in Budapest. So Sally had gone, but she was under strict instructions not to talk to anyone from Russia because there was a big diplomatic incident going on. I think a plane had been shot down. Some Americans died and, and the Russians were was potentially somehow implicated in this. So she was like, you can't talk to any of the Russians or I think the Soviets, I should say, at that time. So there she was at the conference and, and there was a tap on, on her shoulder in a in sort of mingling network situation. She spins around and she sees Svetlana. And remembering all her orders, she said, oh, oh, and she made her apologies and run off. But afterwards, she, as it says in, in the book and when it's, it's re- the story has been recounted by her, she felt very rude, but also wanted to, to talk more to Svetlana. These were the only two people who had gone through the same experiences as each other in you know, that time. But it, essentially, she ends up meeting Svetlana very covertly. It makes it sound like a spy novel, doesn't it's it? It's brilliant. Yeah. They, they, she, they, were, they were cars, it was pouring rain. They were, you know, she, Sally, I think she really was worried she was ending up in a spy novel and where was she going? Um, and Sally and Svetlana ended up having um, just one evening together where they could talk and exchange gifts and they, they you know, spent the evening as friends discovering that yeah, they had gone through the same things. And it was the only time in their lives that they, they ever met. There's so many different stories in there about, it's not just about the antics that happen in space, it's, it's about all these other stories too. And it was a delight to, to research them and then um, share them with, with the readers. And one final thing I must mention, I really, really enjoyed the illustrations. Oh, Beautiful yeah. colour palette, slightly retro, but also sort of as they get further on, slightly modern as well. They're, they're just gorgeous. Leonard Dupont has done a, a marvellous job and it was really a joy to work with him to bring them to life. But like everything in the book, my watchword has been accuracy. And and there's artistic license and so on, but he, he was great to work with. And, and there's a there's an illustration there, uh, a sort of bird's eye view of um, Neil and Buzz um, on the moon. And you know, the, the, the scene with the, with the lunar module and the flag. And I remember having discussions going the shadows aren't quite right you know this is we've got to get this right we've got to get the physics right we've got to get the the sizes right so that you you don't look at it and go oh, that feels wrong yeah, there's enough conspiracy and, theories thank you very much we we don't want exactly. to contribute and to another one yeah. young readers might not see that but i think it's so important for them to to read something that is real and true and and isn't made up that that attention to detail is there throughout and he has brought some of those scenes to life in, in such a fabulous way yeah it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing and, and he really did a marvellous job I'm very proud of it Libby Jackson and her book Space Explorers 25 Extraordinary Stories of Space Exploration and I realised on listening back to that interview that instead of Vosk Hod 2 I said Vostok too so i do know i said that (laughs) don't shame me don't shame me um interestingly because you touched on in the tim interview about the the right the right stuff 
um, Libby made that little comment about, you know, actually that she wanted to be really accurate and make these stories that were sort of factual and truth based. Um, that's something particularly with the TV series, The Right Stuff, that seems to have slightly divided some space communities, doesn't it, in terms of um, the, the what factually actually happened and the need for drama, which, well, which means you do if, if it's a dramatized version. I mean, I err towards the it's got to be good drama as long as you don't make so completely inaccurate things about the, the space thing, like so maybe saying a different astronaut went there first or something. Look, I, I mean, I've at the risk of... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think the drama is is more often more interesting. And I know a lot of space buffs are often into the hardware and... I'm more into the people and the human stories. And I think the Right Stuff TV series... Well, we've I mean, been enjoying it, Yeah, we? absolutely. I think, and I think it's great because those I've spoken to... I, mean, I think we should get, actually, the um, author on of the um, autobiography on Alan Shepard because he seems a particularly fascinating character. And obviously, it's not word for word. It's like the crown. It's like the debate over the crown, yeah. isn't it? The, you know, it's not wholly accurate, but it essentially reflects the overall arc of the story and you get the individual drama and a sense of their psyche. Is. And talking to people who knew Alan Shepard, it seems they pretty much got it spot on. Uh, I wonder if he did get his top off, though, every opportunity. Maybe that's, that may be the uh, director of the, dra- the dramatising of he's got quite a good physique. Let's, let's have him with his shirt off in every other scene. That, that could be more. more <laughs> to be honest, I hadn't noticed that. Interesting you should pick up on that. That's probably via Space Hipsters, actually. <laughs> when, well, as soon as that was said, I thought, yeah, they're, they're right. But I I, was, yeah, I, I actually Carney love, I do love the human drama and i think that's what coming back to tim peake's interview it's those human dramas that makes it all come alive yeah. and, and surely that's what human space fights about and that's what engages us it's humans doing these things in space and that's what's the, the most engaging the most exciting yeah well libby's book would make a great christmas present as would our next book which is called unmasked science behind superheroes it's written by six scientists at the university of central lancashire and covers a combination of science including space science in a really fun and accessible way for young adults and students so it's a it's a higher level because it does involve all the the explanations of the the physics and the maths in some cases but through cartoon characters and uh, relating to a lot of very uh recognisable Marvel characters in particular, uh, shall we say. A lot of the uh, cartoons are based on the authors themselves and their particular speciality. And so I spoke to one of the authors, solar physicist Professor Robert Walsh, and began by discussing with him how they came up with the idea in the first place. At the, the University of Central Lancashire, we do have quite a number of you know academics, particularly young lecturers, who really enjoy telling other people about the science that they're involved with. And as you do as academics, you're sitting around one day before COVID, of course, and uh, we talked to one another and we thought, actually, we're all sort of interested in these aspects of you know, superheroes and science fiction. In fact, some of the people involved do actually go to things like cosplay and dress up as the various characters from a whole range of different, you know, superhero and Doctor Who and Star Trek and things like that. I said, well, is there any way we could use our public engagement abilities? The fact we want to communicate our science, but do it through the medium of these sort of superheroes. So we uh, we approached the university. They gave us some sort of seed corn funds to 
to work with uh, our publishing wing, uh, UCLan Publishing, and they encouraged us to work with actually our students. So we have uh, had undergraduate students who are on the uh, publishing course to help us to edit uh, the materials we put together. To we got a student to do a lot of the illustration, particularly those on the cover of the book, and uh, and we pulled it together as a chapter per science discipline. And um, you know something which maybe we couldn't have done each of us, but when we came together like a I don't know like a super team like the Avengers working together to reach a goal, uh, we managed to, to pull the book off. Do you know what? That's so funny because I was going to be quite flippant and say, did you get this idea for this book because you wanted to see what you all look like in Lycra? But basically the answer to that was yes. Yes. We did. And in fact, many of you already knew. Yeah. Like uh, I'm the only one that hasn't really, but you know, with my, with my character, they're very keen to try and get me dressed up like the, the characters that they've, they've drawn us as past. Well, well let's, let's, let's just go into what you do look like in Lycra. Mm. Okay, uh, I've got your chapter open here. And obviously, as befits your work as a professor of solar physics, mm. you've got a sun in the middle of your breastplate armor. <laughs> you, you know, you've got, you know, a traditional superheroes, you know, there was usually a cape, but yeah. we, we all know how dangerous they can be. They can, yes. Um, yep, you've yep. got sort of blue lycra and you're firing sort of solar flame mm. balls from your hands. You've got epaulets, but uh, you, you've got red groovy goggle glasses sort of uh, replicating your, in, in, a, in a much more comic book form your, your normal glasses That's which true, aren't yeah. obviously red red glass but you you're green yes why did you want to be green i suppose there's a there could be a couple of reasons as you can probably hear i'm from from ireland from northern ireland there's a, there's a greenness for being irish but probably <laughs> also the fact that uh, the chapter is about alien superheroes you know what's it like you know in regard of thinking about aliens existing if they if if they are and i suppose the initial reaction of people to that is oh it must be somebody who's green because that's the sort of color we sort of associate with these little green men or women that could exist out there you know i never put that together i I didn't it didn't dawn on me that and it should have done having just recently written an article on the on the psychology of alien belief Mm. effectively little green men for bbc science focus (laughs) magazine now your chapter is on the the drake equation and i mean apart from you know you do the birth of stars and Mm. things but you really go into detail i actually thought that was quite clever because i think we tend to think of the drake equation of oh well it's an equation for working out the number of potential alien civilizations Mm. without really knowing all the component parts of that yeah the drake equation was put together by frank drake really wasn't just to get a number you know, not just to get an idea of an estimate, I suppose, of the number of intelligent civilizations that could exist in the Milky Way, but rather an opportunity to go through that thought process of saying, okay, what elements do you need to have in place for an intelligent civilization to exist out there, be in the same time frame that that we are here, and also that uh, would want to communicate with us. So we I approached it in a way of trying to break it down into those component parts and look at the science behind each of them and then sort of bring it all back together to see what the final sort of um, solution actually is. Some of those elements are very challenging within the Drake equation, what we are estimating at at this moment in time for compared to what we think we scientifically know. And there are still many 
known unknowns in the Drake equation. But it does give us a way of thinking, well, if life is out there, you know, what does it need to exist? What does it need to um, flourish? And what does it need to try and be speaking to us? Yeah. And um, I mean, obviously, each chapter covers, a, as, you, as you said, a, a different aspect of it. And in fact, you do cover psychology mm. of uh, for superheroes, um, engineering, super enhancements, artificial intelligence. But space does prop up again, specifically, I noticed in the mathematics chapter. Uh, in the math chapter in, in, in particular, you're looking at things about relativity and things like that. What happens if you travel, you know, really fast and things like that. There's aspects of just the basic aspects of weightlessness when you go into space, your your mass, the effect of gravity and how that can be worked out. Remember, this is a book to try and get people the, the basics of science a, a, across in, in that way. When you look at the, the psychology side of things, I suppose we, we looked at it not just with the psychology of a super brain what does a superhero's brain look like but also things like teamwork nuking at what the nasa astronauts for example are doing on the international space station how they sort of interact with each other and then how superhero teams could work together you just need to look at captain america and iron man in their civil war to see how a team can of uh, super individuals can disintegrate really rapidly if they're strong uh, views on either side, so we, you know, we we try to build into the the superhero genre some real background science that that can come out and that can actually helps people think. Oh yeah, like, I can understand a bit more about science, but actually I'm just using superheroes to to get to it. Actually, that the, the psychology is is really interesting with the. Uh... So some of the the people that are more of the characters, say like Elon Musk, for instance, uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, the uh, you know independent space industry, particularly when he's Elon Musk. I mean, the name itself is magnificent. It is, that could be a comic book character, hmm. but he could also so easily be the hero or the baddie. Yeah. Depending on which way <laughs> you write him, you, really. You could, you could fall either way on that. Yeah, um, yeah. Very, very much so. And he's opinionated too, because you want, you sort of, the best superheroes, I think, are the ones who've got a personality. Yeah, very strong and conviction. Who are flawed, who yeah. are geniuses, but flawed, yeah. or, you know, there's something in them that that's not vanilla. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, you have to be uh, a very strong character to be like any Elon Musk or Tony Stark. Or uh, Lex Luthor, depending on what side of the fence you want to you want to sit on. Robert Walsh, one of the authors of Unmasked: Science Behind Superheroes, published by the University of Central Lancashire, supported by STFC. It's going to be placed in all UK libraries as well, but you can order it from most bookstores, as with Libby's book, and online, including for this one www.unmaskedscience.com. Com, which features online games and science lessons as well based on the UK curriculum as well as experiments based around superheroes so uh, if in the new year you're you've got a bit of homeschooling for any potential lockdown reasons then there's the the place to go and you'll be pleased to hear that the uh, scientists have a follow-up book planned considering what we discussed about Elon Musk that will concentrate on supervillains next time. So I'm looking forward to that. I told you it was a good one. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Yes. It, it's, it's was it good the, or good? It's, or it's great. It's of the usual high space boffin standard. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thanks again to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast and the Naked Scientists for hosting. We'll be back next year with more on the return to the moon. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Heute in fünf Jahren, der Zukunftspodcast. In dieser Staffel fragen wir eine neue Auswahl an Experten aus verschiedenen Disziplinen wie Politik, Mode und Sport, wie die Welt in fünf Jahren aussehen wird. Diese Woche werden wir von Ford unterstützt, die selbst einen Blick in die Zukunft gewagt haben, um zu erfahren, wie sich Sport und Motorsport durch Innovationen im Bereich Leistung und Nachhaltigkeit verändern werden. Nämlich im Rahmen ihres eigenen Podcasts Dare to Create. Finde heute in fünf Jahren und Dare to Create von Ford jetzt bei allen Podcast-Playern.